you've been here with us the last two weeks, you know we've been talking about uh, the life of Noah. Uh, you also might notice that there's something a little bit different about the ark this week. And we're going to be talking about that difference, which is a significant one, by the way, here in just a little bit. Up to this point in the story, we've seen that God looked down and he saw the wickedness of man. He saw the, devi the deviance that was going on, the evil and the violence and the corruption. And not only did he see what people were doing, but he also saw into their hearts. And God determined that because of the wickedness, that God was going to destroy every living creature. But God looks down and he sees Noah. And Noah was a righteous man. And so the scripture tells us that Noah found grace, found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And so God is going to spare Noah and his family from the coming destruction. Then we found out that God actually has a well-thought-out, like you would expect anything less from God, a well-thought-out plan to replenish the earth once, it's, once the flood has is, is come and, and done its work. He's going to do it through Noah's sons. And today, as we'll see, he also has kind of a plan to do it through the animals as well. It's, it's, it's wonderful how God, even before he is destroying the earth, he also has a plan to restore it, which is just a wonderful part of this story. So God comes to Noah and he says, I want you to build an ark because I'm going to destroy the earth and I want you to build it and here are the dimensions. And the scripture tells us that Noah went about and did everything as God had told him. That's where we are today. And this is the part of the story where for some reason we like to leave it as a children's story. You know what I'm talking about. When we come to this part about Noah in the ark, you know how the Noah, the, the, the children's story that we all learned in Sunday school, and we all know about the toy arks that you can buy that your children can play with, and you can take the top off, and you can lift the animals out. We all know that there are nurseries all over the place, especially in churches, that have a mural of Noah in the ark on the wall, and we all know about coloring books that maybe a Sunday school teacher has given to a child with the story of Noah and things to go home and, and color. And don't get me wrong, all of those things are fine. I think any way that, that you can teach a child something about what's in Scripture, I think that's great. But here's what we've done. As adults, we've left it at this point as a children's story. Now, I don't know if we keep it as a children's story because children particularly want to read it or because adults just really don't want to read it for what it is. Because if we read it for what it is, and if we read it and what it says to us, then we have to deal with it. Because in reality, you will not find a darker tale in Scripture than the story of the destruction of the earth. Frederick Bigner has suggested that this story might be one that is more dangerous to ignore than it is to actually confront. Because he says if you confront it and its implications, then you can deal with it and that leads to salvation. But if you ignore it or make it less than it is, that always leads to destruction. It's an indeed an adult story. Especially at this point in the story. It's an adult story with adult implications that we can't ignore. It's kind of our pattern, though. You know how we are. Peter Pan? Peter Pan didn't want to do what? Grow up. 
There's even a little song. Sorry, Andy didn't sing it today. I won't grow up. I won't. You know the little song from Peter Pan. Why doesn't he want to grow up? If he grows up, he has to face reality and to face all the issues in adult life. But this is kind of our pattern as, as, as humans. We, we don't want to confront things. So what we do is we make them into something that maybe is more childlike so we can, can deal with it. In my day, there was a cartoon, Casper the Friendly Ghost. Some of you may have seen that. Well, we don't want to deal with death, and we don't want to deal with, with spirits, and we don't want to deal with the afterlife, so what do we do? We come up with a cartoon, Casper and the Friendly Ghost, so we can laugh and we can watch Casper fly around. We don't want to deal with the occult and, and evil in the world, so what did we do in my day? There was a sitcom, Bewitched. You know, Samantha, the witch, all she did was twinkle her nose, and things would happen, and, and instead of the greater issues... Uh, of things of darkness in the world. What are we dealing with? We're laughing at a, at a witch that can twitch her nose and make things happen, clean the house, and we wish we could do things like that. Now, and today, there, there are other things. I know that there are things like Twilight and the Vampire Diaries and, and all of those things. We don't want to deal with those issues of darkness and evil, so we make them into love stories. Now, here's the thing. I, I'm not running down and condemning any of these shows, most of which I've never seen. But the idea is, if, if we take anything that, that trivializes real issues in the world, it, it doesn't do us any good. And it's kind of our pattern. Entertainment's fine. And if you want to watch those, it's your discretion. I'm not saying you should do one or the other. I, I'm just saying that, that we tend to trivialize and laugh at things that are of major importance. I'll give you another example. People will say to me sometimes, they go, Yeah, preacher, yeah, I know I'm, I'm going to hell. <laughs> and they laugh about it. They make a joke about it. They know they're going to hell. They think it's funny. I mean, they think it's like you're going to some obnoxious relatives for dinner. They think, well, we're going to go there, and it's going to be kind of unpleasant for a while, but we're eventually going to come home. And so in order not to have to deal with the idea that eternity is eternity and it's final and wherever you go is final and if hell is the place it's a terrible place that we can't even begin to imagine but if we can laugh about it if we can make it into a joke then we don't have to deal with its implications that's kind of what we do we tend to do that but the event of the flood and the storm of storms that precedes it it's something that we can't ignore, and we can't just keep a children's story. And it's something that we can't hide inside of a toy ark or hide behind some mural on a wall. Genesis chapter 7 is where we are today. It says this, When everything was ready, the Lord said to Noah, Go into the boat with all your family. For among all the people of the earth, I can see that you alone are righteous. Take with you seven pairs, male and female, of each animal I have approved for eating and for sacrifice, and take one pair of each of the others. Also take seven pairs of every kind of bird. There must be a male and female in each pair to ensure that all life will survive on the earth after the flood. The ark is finished, and God says to Noah, it's time. You've done what I've said. You've been obedient. I told you to build an ark. You've done that. Now it's time to get on the ark. And he talks about animals. <clears throat> and you think, 
If, if God's going to destroy the earth, why would he destroy the animals? The animals haven't done anything. Why is it that he's only going to save a certain number of animals? Well, if you think about it, when the flood is over, and when God starts his plan to restore the world, well, if all the animals that had ever existed are saved, look at the proportion of animals to these few people, the one family. So God's got everything in proportion. It's sad that the animals are going to be destroyed along with the evil humans. But at the same time, when God starts his plan to restore at the end, things need to be in balance. So God's got it all planned out. He says that they are to take pairs of every animal on the ark and seven pairs of animals that are to be used for sacrifice. And he says that there must be a male and a female. A male and a female. Just saying. And that he wants to ensure that life will survive. Now, there's some who believe that they're dinosaurs as well on the ark. Think that's strange? Go to Answers in Genesis sometime on the website. We can't get into all this today. It's, it's fascinating if you want to read about it. But he distinguishes, God does, between clean and unclean animals. Now, what's a clean and an unclean animal? Well, basically, according to Leviticus 11, uh, clean animals can be eaten and used for sacrifice. Unclean animals cannot. Now, how do you know what a clean animal is and what an unclean animal is? Well, you would think it'd have to do with, with uh, the way it looks. I mean, think of a pig. <laughs> Dirty an animal as you get. So is a pig an unclean animal according to the Bible? Yes, it is. But so is a rabbit <laughs> according to Scripture. Now, go figure. A nice furry little bunny is called an unclean. Here's how you tell the difference according to Leviticus 11. A clean animal, one that you can eat and use for sacrifice, has split hooves, okay? Cloven hooves, if you want to call them that. And, has to do both of these, has to have split hooves, and it has to chew cud. You know what that is, C-U-D? It's wonderful. Cows do it. What happens is, they regurgitate partially digested food and chew it again. Now, that's the clean animal. <laughs> I don't understand it, and we're not going to get into all that today. There were different birds and fish and insects and all sorts of things that were clean and unclean. If you really want to study at Leviticus 11, knock yourself out, but we don't want to stray too far from what we're talking about today. But God had a plan. God had pairs of every kind of animal, and God was going to replenish the earth with the clean and the unclean. Then it says in, in verse 4, it says, Seven days from now I will make the rains pour down on the earth, and it will rain for 40 days and 40 nights until I have wiped from the earth all the living things I have created. So Noah did everything as the Lord commanded him. He says for seven days, it's time, Noah. I'm going to give you a week. Get on the ark. Get everything ready. Get on the ark. But also you can look at this I would say, is, is God, remember we talked about how God just, he doesn't want anyone to perish. He wants everyone to come to repentance. And it's kind of like, okay, there's going to be one more week. There's going to be one more chance. And we wonder, well, did, did anyone really pay any attention to him? I mean, did people listen to him? Did they laugh at him? Did Noah preach to them at all? Or did Noah just go about his work? Or did they even notice it all? We don't know. But the Bible 
implies to us that they just still went about their business. But we're going to look at that just here in, in just a few moments. Noah, in verse 6, Noah was 600, young man. Noah was 600 years old when the flood covered the earth. He went on board the boat to escape the flood, he and his wife and his sons and their wives. With them were all the various kinds of animals, those approved for eating and for sacrifice and those that were not, along with all the birds and the small animals that scurry along the ground. They entered the boat in pairs, male and female, just as God had commanded Noah. Back to the animals for a minute. You know how many animals speculated were, people speculate were on the ark? 45,000. 45,000 animals. Now, how in the world would you round up that many animals? Can you imagine? Noah said to his sons, okay, I'll handle building the boat. You go out and round up 45,000 pairs of animals and insects and all that kind of stuff that we have to, to take on the ark. That sounds like a, a great thing. But here's, here's the answer to that question. Uh, back in, in chapter 6 and in, in verse 20, when Noah was talking, or God was talking to Noah, Noah, or God said to Noah, you're going to bring on the ark the animals that will come to you. He didn't have to go out and round them up. The scripture tells us that God took care of that. God said to Noah, go build an ark. That's what God wanted Noah to do. Go build an ark. I'll take care of this other stuff. You be obedient to me and build the ark. And God took care of it. Verse 10 says, After seven days the waters of the flood came and covered the earth. During this seven-day period, did anybody get it? Did anybody repent? You know, I've known some people that I would consider eccentric, crazy. And I've had some people tell me some really interesting things. And I have come across people doing some interesting things. So I can understand if you have this old man pushing 600 years old with his 98-year-old son building a big boat that's 450 feet long and three decks high, I might think he was a little strange. But now here's the thing. I might start to pay attention if 45,000 animals in perfect pairs just happened to show up at this boat, that might get my attention. But evidently it didn't because when we look at 1 Peter, and we don't have this on the screen, but in, in 1 Peter he gives us the answer because he said when Noah went onto the ark after God had waited patiently, he tells us that only a few people, eight, eight in all, which is Noah and his family, would be saved. Verse 11, when Noah was 600 years old, on the 17th day of the second month, all the underground waters erupted from the earth, and the rain fell in mighty torrents from the sky. The rain continued to fall for 40 days and 40 nights. Here's something else to chew on. You've heard all your life that millions of years, you know, that the creation of the world, evolutionists will tell you, it took place over millions and millions of years. But there are creation scientists that believe the earth itself is less than 5,000 years old. 
And, and those who believe that have a lot of science to back it up. So I would encourage you, again, go to a place called Answers in Genesis and, and take a look at that. It, it, it's fascinating. But 1,656 years into the creation of the earth. Now, that doesn't seem like a very long time. But that far in, the earth had become so corrupt, so corrupt, that God decided to destroy it. At the start of the flood, we're told that the underground waters erupted from the earth and that the rain fell in mighty torrents from the sky. And then we're told that this rain lasted for 40 days and 40 nights. Now, we know what torrential rain is like. We've seen it. But imagine it. This torrential rain, as hard as you've ever seen it and probably worse, continuing for 40 days and 40 nights. And then he says that the underground waters, what are they? Well, some would say that it's volcanic activity. It was caused by volcanic activity. It's caused by geysers. Some have the uh, theory that the sea actually rose and that that flattened things out so that the seawater spilled on the land. We, we don't really know. Here's the important thing, is that whatever happened and ever how it happened was cataclysmic. And it says in verse 13, that very day Noah had gone into the boat with his wife and his son, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and their wives. With them in the boat were pairs of every kind of animal, domestic and wild, large and small, along with the birds of every kind. Two by two they came into the boat, representing every living thing that breathes. A male and a female of each kind entered, just as God had commanded Noah. Then the Lord closed the door behind them. The door is closed. We're going to look at that here in a minute. Verse 17. For 40 days, the floodwaters grew deeper, covering the ground and lifting the boat high above the earth. As the waters rose higher and higher above the ground, the boat floated safely on the surface. Finally, the water covered even the highest mountains on earth, rising more than 22 feet above the highest peaks. Think about that. 22 feet above the highest peaks. All the living things on earth die. Birds, domestic animals, wild animals, small animals that scurry along the ground, and all the people. Everything that breathed and lived on dry land died. God wiped out every living thing on the earth. People, livestock, small animals that scurry along the ground, and the birds of the sky. All were destroyed. The only people who survived were Noah and those with him in the boat. And the floodwaters covered the earth for 150 days. Now, if we stop there, what have we done? We have taken it from a children's story to now we've made it an adult story. But probably all we've done is just learn a whole bunch of facts. So now we know a lot about the ark. But what's the real message? What's the, what's the real message of chapter 7? Well, I think one of the most overlooked, solemn, profound, frightening, yet at the same time comforting verses in the Old Testament, maybe even in Scripture, period, is verse 16. Of chapter 7. Amidst all the evil, amidst all the evil that was going on in the world, 
amidst the horror and the destruction that was to come, you find this wonderful story. And we've looked at this, this wonderful story of God's grace. God showing his grace to Noah and his family because of their righteousness. We have this wonderful story of God's patience about how God delayed and delayed and delayed. And even in this chapter that we read today, there was one more week Maybe just in hopes. God was holding out hope because he didn't want anyone to perish. He wants everyone to come to repentance. And then you have this wonderful story about God just being patient with mankind in general. Man who is evil in his heart and God wanting so desperately for him to be saved. But then we come to verse 16 of Genesis 7. After everyone had entered the ark, as God commanded, verse 16 says, Then the Lord closed the door behind them. God himself closed the door. On one side, you have Noah and his family. They're there because they were righteous. On the other side, you have everyone else and everything else. And the people are there on the other side because of their wickedness. On one side of the door, you have eight people who are righteous and are going to be saved from the destruction. On the other side, you have everyone else who is going to be destroyed because they wouldn't listen. Because they wouldn't live like God wanted them to. Because no faith was found in them. It says that God himself closed the door. This says two things to me. The first thing is the literal meaning of closing the door behind them. Really means covered them round about. So the idea in closing the door is that God wraps his arms, his protection around those in the ark. It's a wonderful picture of God not just closing them in and saying good luck, but about God literally wrapping himself around them and protecting them. And the second thing about closing the door, it shows that there's a finality. There's a finality to it. Because to those who were left on the outside, the season of God's grace was over. This God who was gracious, who was patient, who was loving. Once the door is closed, the season of grace is over. And those who find themselves in the ark will be saved. And those who find themselves outside the ark will be destroyed. Let's go to the New Testament. New Testament, 2 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 3. This is most importantly, I want to remind you. Then in the last days, scoffers will come, mocking the truth and following their own desires. They will say, what happened to the promise that Jesus is coming again? From before the times of our ancestors, everything has remained the same since the world was first created. They deliberately forget that God made the heavens by the word of his command. And he brought the earth out from the water and surrounded it with water. Then he used the water to destroy the ancient world with a mighty flood. And by the same word, 
the present heavens and earth have been stored up for fire. They are being kept for the day of judgment when ungodly people will be destroyed. Here is the serious and urgent application for you and for me today, now. There is room. There is room in Christ for all comers. There is. Right now, at this moment, there is room in Christ for all comers. God so much loves us. He so desperately loves us that he became a man in Jesus Christ and went to the cross in our place and died for us. He became sin for us and died for us on a cross. That's how much God loves us. He loves us so desperately. And he desperately wants us to confess and to repent of our sins. He doesn't want anyone to perish. We have said that over and over and over. His desire is that no one perishes, but that everyone comes to repentance. And then, His grace and His mercy. God desperately wants to forgive us. God desperately wants to call us His children. God desperately wants to enter into a relationship with us. God desperately wants to spend eternity with us in heaven. That's the God that we have. Dies for us. Does not want us to be destroyed wants to live eternally with us. And the door is open right now. The door is open. He so desperately loves us that the door has been open for generation after generation after generation. But one day, just like in the days of Noah, God himself will close that door. God himself will close the door. And whether it is through death, or whether it is through Jesus coming again, once that happens, once that door closes, it is closed. And just like those who found themselves on the wrong side of the ark... It's permanent, and it's irreversible. I can guarantee you, when the floodwaters started to rise, and when the ark started to float, and when people were up to their mouths in water and trying desperately to find dry land to survive and climbing on top of one another and clawing at the ark, I guarantee you there were people who were saying, okay, okay, I believe now. I believe, I believe, let me in. But the door was closed by God himself, and it was too late. And it's the same with us. One day, though the door is open now, one day God himself will close the door. And it's permanent, 
and it's irreversible. And so the question for you and for me is found in Hebrews 2. Since that's the case, how shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? The people in Noah's time did not because they ignored it. And so the writer of Hebrews is asking us, how are you going to escape? When God closes the door, how are you going to escape? Are you going to count on your good works? Are you going to count on your wits? Are you going to count on maybe a family member? What are you counting on to get you into heaven? There's only one way. The Bible says this, Acts 4. Salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. If you are counting on anything else, it's going to be as it was in the days of Noah. Those who have accepted the offer that God offers over and over and over and over again will be safe and spend an eternity with Him. Those who have chosen not to spend an eternity somewhere else as well in a place of unbelievable misery and eternal separation from God. And that's the choice that we have. And people say, well, I don't want to make the choice now. Well, I just want to tell you that if you don't make the choice, the default choice, the one that will be made for you, is not the one that you need to choose. Because by choosing not to choose is the same as rejecting and saying no. The door is open. At this very moment, the door is open, but they're the words from Isaiah that are ominous to us as well. It says, seek the Lord while he may be found. He can be found now. Seek him while he may be found and call on him while he is near. Great words. He can be found now and he is near. But they're also ominous words in the sense that while our salvation is eternal, the offer of it is not. One day, the door closes. And you get to choose which side you're on. Choose wisely. Let's pray.